the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Water in the court. Be seated. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquart. Todd Marquart, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. On KLUP 930 AM, The Answer, podcasts everywhere and talklawradio.com. Today I'll be talking about a recent court order signed in the case of Mock versus Garland. I first spoke about this case on August 12, 2023 with Adam Turcott. Check out our interview on YouTube. Find the Talk Law Radio channel on YouTube, then... Below the banner, find the search box, magnifying glass, and type Adam and press enter. Mock v. Garland is a federal court case about whether a federal agency, the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency, violated the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution by changing the definition of short-barreled rifle which has the effect of requiring those who want to purchase a pistol with a stabilizing brace to apply for and pay for a tax stamp. Merrick Garland is the United States Attorney General, and so that's why uh, Garland is the defendant in this case. And the United States Attorney General is over the ATF. ATF has some of their some of the attorney general's uh, duties delegated to it regarding the regulation of firearms under the uh, National Firearms Act and the Gun Control Act. So the ATF changed the definition of short-barreled rifle, and this has two effects on you. It requires registration and paying a tax to purchase a pistol with an arm brace, and that erodes the Second Amendment, which guarantees our right to keep and bear arms. And two, allowing the federal agency to circumvent Congress uh, gives the executive branch of government too much power. Yesterday, the Saturday show was about federal income taxes. Check out the Facebook Live video or the podcast to learn more about year-end planning for federal income tax year 2023. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day and for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk about the law on the radio. Please forgive us for our sins, for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing and failing to follow your will. Please help us to follow your will more closely. Please help me give good information about hidden legal issues in gun and firearm ownership today. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided 
for the good of your people, for our own good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Again, I just want to reiterate, what does this mean for you, the ATF changing the definition of short-barreled rifle to include pistols with stabilizing arm braces? It erodes the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees our right to keep and bear arms. And number two, it gives the federal agency, the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, too much power by circumventing Congress, uh, which I'll get into in just a moment. In 2012, the Obama-Biden administration and their ATF agency determined that pistol brace attachments did not change the classification of a pistol to that of a rifle. Despite this, the Biden administration in 2021 directed the United States Department of Justice to propose a rule that clarified when a pistol with a brace attachment should be designated as a short-barreled rifle. Earlier this year, uh, the Department of Justice announced the stabilizing brace's final rule. The rule titled, quote, Factoring Criteria for Firearms with Attached Stabilizing Braces, end quote, would reclassify pistols as short-barreled rifles if they have a stabilizing brace attached. Part of the executive summary of the rule put out by the ATF says, quote, nothing in this rule bans stabilizing braces or the use of stabilizing braces on pistols, end quote. Also, quote, the rule does not impose any new legal obligations on owners of stabilizing braces at all, as any obligations for these owners result only from the NFA, that's the National Firearms Act, and the Gun Control Act, end quote. And so what that means to me when they say the rule does not impose any new obligations is they're, they're saying the obligation was already there under the NFA and the the GCA, those those previous laws and the definition of short-barreled rifle. But nobody in their right mind would think that a pistol is a rifle. And so the it doesn't even make good sense for the ATF to define the pistol with a brace as a short-barreled rifle. I'll, I'll tell you more specifically uh, why they came up with that in just a moment. The Gun Control Act is the one that defined the term rifle and short-barreled rifle. Uh, that's in 18 United States Code 921, subparagraph A7, and subparagraph A8. It says, A rifle is defined as a weapon designed or redesigned, made or remade, and intended to be fired from the shoulder and designed or redesigned and made or remade to use the energy of an explosive to fire only a single projectile through a rifled bore for each single pull of the trigger. That's the definition of rifle. The definition of short-barreled rifle is this. A rifle having one to more barrels less than 16 inches in length and any weapon made from a rifle, whether by alteration, modification, or otherwise, if such weapon as modified has an overall length of less than 26 inches. That's 
in 18 United States Code 921, paragraph A8. So if you go by that definition, wouldn't a pistol be a short-barreled rifle? That's a little bit ridiculous. Okay, well, here's the background on the National Firearm Act of 1934. It was regulation in response to the emergence of organized crime. And the focus of the NFA was on machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, and silencers. There are registration requirements for short-barreled rifles. A short-barreled rifle, less than 16 inches. The Act requires short-barreled rifles to be registered in the National Firearms Registration and transfer record to a person entitled to possess the firearm. Short-barreled rifles are also subject to certain taxes for ownership as well as transfer. The Gun Control Act came in 1968. It expanded federal firearms regulation to address the widespread traffic in firearms and their general availability to those whose possession thereof was contrary to the public interest. So the Gun Control Act built upon the National Firearms Act and defined additional terms that were not defined in the National Firearms Act, such as handgun, which is defined in 18 United States Code section 921 and 922. The Gun Control Act's definition of rifle, however, remained the same as in the National Firearms Act. And the Congress vested the authority to enforce and administer both statutory National Firearms Act and Gun Control Act in the Attorney General of the United States, who then delegated the authority to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. I found some information um, from the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Uh, This was written by somebody named A.W. Geisel on March 22, 2023. You can find this by searching on the internet Duke Center for Firearms Law. And this article was entitled Litigation Highlight Legal Challenges to ADF, ATF Rule on Stabilizing Braces. And what I wanted to just mention uh, from this article was the the different ways lawsuits have been challenging the the regulation, the rule change. Some of them uh, argue that the rule is ultra-vires, which is Latin for um, void. Another argument is that the rule is arbitrary and capricious. Another one says unconstitutionally vague. Another one says that the government should be equitably stopped from enforcing it. And still others say that uh, the rule or the ATF was non-compliant with notice and comment procedures. So there's this uh, this other law that we need to know a little bit about to understand uh, the attacks on this rule. It's One of them is called the Administrative Procedures Act. Under the Administrative Procedures Act, when agencies like the ATF make rules, they must first submit the rule for public comment on the Federal Register. 
During this period, citizens can give their thoughts on the rule and describe their unique situations out as to how it will affect them. So the the Duke Center for Firearms Law included this argument as part of the article. The argument that black the ATF lacks delegated powers to alter the National Firearms Act. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip this section because I want to get to the case. Mock versus Garland uh, was filed January 31st, 2023. The uh, plaintiffs were a person named William T. Mock, Christopher Lewis, and the Firearms Policy Coalition Incorporated, which is a 501c4 organization. There were lots of filings, but I'm just going to mention the highlights. On February 21st, 2023, the plaintiffs filed a motion for injunction or in the alternative to postpone the effective date of the final rule. On March 30th, the court submitted its opinion and order saying, having considered the party's briefing and applicable law, the court holds that the plaintiffs have not carried their burden to demonstrate demonstrate substantial likelihood of success on the merits. So they they didn't lose the whole case. They were just denied the injunction. An injunction is a legal word which means that the, the government would be prevented from enforcing its rule. So that was March 30th. Okay, so on March 30th, they filed an appeal to complain that the court made the wrong decision in denying the motion for injunction. So that would take it from the federal district court to the federal appeals court in the Fifth Circuit of Appeals. On May 24th, the Court of Appeals said that the preliminary, the appeal was granted. And on September 25th, the court said that the order to deny the injunction should be reversed and remanded to the district court. So the Court of Appeals said that it was the wrong decision and they needed to try again, but the Court of Appeals doesn't tell the district court what to do. It just tells them that they made the wrong decision according to the law, appellate law. Okay, and then on October 2nd, the district court reviewed all the evidence again. It says, having considered the party's briefing and applicable law, the court grants plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction against the government defendants. So the court changed its mind on whether there would be a likelihood of success. In order for the court to grant an injunction, it has to find that the plaintiffs will probably win the trial. So the Fifth Circuit is saying that the the plaintiffs in this case will probably prevail in their argument that this rule is against the law, that it's unconstitutional, that it violated the Administrative Procedures Act or whatever. For whatever reason, it's going to be not enforced. So I think that that's a pretty significant statement that the district court made. So the this comes from the Northern District 
of Texas, the the Fort Worth division. I wanted to give you some some other background here about Firearms Policy Coalition. That this is one of the plaintiffs. I told you it's a 501c4. It's a nonprofit organization, and this is from their website. You can look it up. Go to firearmspolicy.org. Their mission, it says, it, it exists to create a world of maximal human liberty, defend constitutional rights, advance individual liberty, and restore freedom. Firearms Policy Coalition's efforts are focused on the right to keep and bear arms and adjacent issues, including freedom of speech, due process, unlawful searches and seizures, separation of powers, asset forfeitures, privacy, encryption, and limited government. The Firearms Policy Coalition team are next-generation advocates working to achieve the organization's strategic objectives through litigation, research, scholarly publications, amicus briefing, legislative and regulatory action, grassroots activism, education, outreach, and other programs. There are other cases that are filed in different courts to that sort of come to the same result. There was another case filed in the United States District Court, Southern District of Texas, the Victoria Division. This was the case of the state of Texas, Gun, o- Gun Owners of America Incorporated, Gun Owners Foundation, and Brady Brown. Those were the plaintiffs. Defendants were United States Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, United States Department of Justice, and Stephen M. Dettelbach, Director of the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, in his official capacity. There's another case called Miller v. Garland, which was uh, filed in the United States District Court, the Eastern District of Virginia, Alexandria Division. If you want to look this up, it's different. They come to a different conclusion. And I think that that's also significant because this could get pushed up to the Supreme Court. So in this opinion, the, the, the court says the plaintiff's attacks the final rule on several grounds, that the final rule exceeds alcohol, tobacco, and firearms authority, that the final rule violates various Administrative Procedures Act procedural requirements, that the final rule implicates major questions doctrine, that the final rule imposes ex post facto criminal liability, that the final rule violates the Fifth Amendment as it is void for vagueness, and that the NFA and final rule infringe upon plaintiffs' Second Amendment rights. And what's interesting to me about this case, again, is that they came to the opposite conclusion, that the plaintiffs were not likely to succeed on the merits after a final through the trial, and so that they were denied the injunction. And so this is a different jurisdiction. This is in Virginia. It's a federal court, um, but it, it's in a different district. And so when there's competing opinions at the circuit level, at the appellate level, 
that's uh, an opportunity for the United States Supreme Court to settle the issue so that there's not competing law in different jurisdictions. So I want to go back to the opinion here and just talk about some of the, the arguments. What do you think? Do you think <clears throat> it's reasonable for the ATF to change a definition and thereby include guns to be more more scrutinized under higher regulation than, than before? Because pe- people bought these guns with these pistols with braces on them before they were deemed to be short-barreled rifles. And so they were they theoretically originally purchased without the need for registration and tax. And so now they are and the ATF had allowed a 120 days for those owners to submit the the forms to register and pay the tax so that they would be in compliance with the law. And the ATF's own statistics estimate that only 8% of people that own pistols with stabilizing braces submitted that paperwork and, and went through that registration process. And so there's there's 92% of those gun owners out there that are not in compliance with the law. And so they could be prosecuted under these uh, regulations. If you have an opinion about that, email me at host at talklawradio. That's H-O-S-T at talklawradio.com. And I'll talk about it again probably on the Saturday show. You can listen every Saturday at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I sometimes have a guest and we talk about uh, what hidden legal issue blind spots are involved in their line of work. Uh, Sometimes it's about real estate. Sometimes it's about gun laws. Sometimes it's estate planning. uh, Sometimes it's tax. Sometimes it's business. I've been talking a lot about business. If you have a legal issue that you're concerned about, email me at host at talklawradio.com and I will hopefully find enough content to talk about it on the radio because it's my mission to help you discover your legal issue blind spots. Okay, back to the ATF rule that that uh, changes the definition of a short-barreled rifle to include a pistol that has a brace. And we're going to talk about some of the the arguments here that uh, the the parties had in trying to convince the court that the uh, the rule is unconstitutional or invalid for one reason or another. And so there is this actual uh, opinion that uh, I can email to you. You could search on the internet and find it yourself. Um, but I'd be happy to send it to you. Um, one of the plaintiffs in this case was uh, a gun dealer, and so the, the court found that there was uh, economic loss uh, because of this rule for, for that party. 
And so that's part of the analysis is whether or not the uh, the damages can be calculated. And so there's a lot of argument in this case about whether it's constitutional. And, and there's two cases known by one of the parties that um, that are determining whether or not gun laws are constitutional now. One is called Heller versus District of Columbia. The other is known as Bruin. And it looks like I'm, I'm going to run out of time. I'm not going to have enough time to go through all of these arguments. But I still want to hear from you. I still want to know what you think about whether it should be okay for a federal agency to redefine terms that the Congress had originally defined. So in the National Firearms Act, Congress is the one that wrote the definition for rifle. And the in the Gun Control Act, it was Congress that wrote the definition for pistol. And so I don't think that a federal agent agency should change what Congress had already defined, should go back to Congress. Now, uh, if you read the opinion of Miller versus Garland, it goes into a little bit of detail about when agencies can regulate and change definitions of things. I've run out of time, so if you want to find previous episodes, you can watch Facebook Live or listen on the radio, 9.30 a.m. KLUP, or you can go to talklawradio.com. If you have questions about gun trusts, which is a special purpose trust, contact an attorney. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans. New businesses and old businesses which might have issues with corporations, contracts, LLCs, or family partnerships. Learn more at marquardtlawfirm.com. Thank you for listening to Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt today. I'll talk to you later. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.